Well, about a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a huge container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Now, let me give you a little context because this ended up being a huge problem. This, this ship was one amongst some of the biggest ships in the entire world, carrying all kinds of goods that was being transported uh, to all kinds of different parts of the world. So this ship was about 400 meters long and 59 meters wide. So in other words, it's really, really big. And it was going through the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal, if you're not familiar, is a really popular um, travel route. It kind of goes between uh, Europe and Asia. And so a ton of global goods that get shipped around the world go through the Suez Canal. That's their transportation uh, route to make sure that things uh, get from one place to another place. And so this huge ship, 400 meters long, 59 meters wide, just absolutely massive, is going through kind of a narrow part in the Suez Canal and it gets stuck. And it gets su stuck in such a way that it's blocking the entire way. So over time, because they couldn't just get it out, like it's really, really stuck and it's blocking everything. Uh, the ships that were coming behind it, all these ships that are bringing goods to different parts of the world, uh, were lining up. There was like 400, I think I read somewhere, a little more than 400 ships that ended up having to stop and wait because they couldn't get around this, this massive container ship that was blocking the way. And they say that it's like $9 billion worth of goods a day that goes through there that was sitting and waiting because they they couldn't get past. It's like 10% of the goods that are being uh, transported around the world at any time uh, go through the Suez Canal here, including a ton of oil and a whole bunch of other stuff. So this problem ha having global effects on um, the trade markets and on what's available for people to buy and sell in different places. And, uh, you know, they, they had all these ideas and they're trying to figure out how do we get this ship dislodged and, and get it through this thing so that everything can keep going again. And as they were working on that, a really funny picture emerged because somebody took a picture of this huge, huge boat uh, that was now all the way across the, the canal and was stuck. And on the bank right next to uh, the water, there was this little excavator. I mean, we think of excavators, they're pretty big, but compared to this ship, it's like insignificantly small. And it's got like its digger going like it's, it's trying to dig out the boat. And so people saw this and it started getting passed around on the internet because it's comical. It's like, we have this massive, massive problem, this huge boat, and how are we gonna fix it? Well, we send in this little tiny digger. So people started making memes of it, right? Where they're, uh, they're labeling the big boat and they're labeling the excavator because all of a sudden we realized most of us can relate to what it's like to have this massive problem and the small amount of resources to try and fix it. So people are posting stuff, you know, like the big ship is my student debt and the little excavator is my paycheck. It is like, I just feel like I'm never gonna get around this. Or some people were posting, uh, you know, the ship, this is the weight I've gained during the pandemic and the excavator, this is my 10 minute workout routine. It's like, we just feel like this is gonna take forever to, to make any sort of progress. You know, this is um, the amount of work that I have to do and this is the amount of motivation I have to do it. And as we looked at it, it's kind of silly and funny and we pass it around, but it's true. Like the obvious point is we, we all have those moments where we feel like we're the little excavator. How are we going to solve this big problem? Oh, come in. What kind of resources do I have? What kind of energy do I have? What kind of ability do I have to really solve the problems that I, I'm, I'm facing? And we feel like, man, we're just this little digger and all the energy we're pouring out and all the work that we're doing is making such a small difference. 
You ever feel like that? I tell you, I, I, I have been hearing a lot from people recently who have felt exactly like that. People say, you know, these days I feel weak, I feel shaken, I feel tired, I feel kind of useless. I feel like I have all of these big problems or the world has all of these big problems and all the resources which are being drained from me just aren't making that big of a difference. I've heard a lot of people talk about how this has been a really tough year because when we face big challenges, struggles, we have big worries, uh, we have we have um, just really significant things we're trying to work through. We feel like we're alone because we can't be with people the way that we're used to being with people. And so uh, we feel like we're just, we're the one little excavator. Like, shouldn't there be a team of people around? And it's just difficult because we can't come around each other physically uh, or be in the same room in the same way. And, and that makes us feel lonely and depleted and even more tired. You know, another thing I hear over and over from people it is not just that I'm going through something hard and that's really tiring or exhausting or overwhelming, but there's people around me that are going through really difficult things and I'm trying to help them and be there for them and I want to help fix their problems and their struggles, but I feel like I can't do it and I'm, again, feeling kind of like I'm lonely in it and I don't have enough resources and I wish they weren't struggling through this, but I can't fix all of the problems in the world and I can't fix all of their problems, but I want to and I don't want them to suffer in this way or to hurt in that way. But we just, at the end of the day, so many of us are feeling like we are. We're weak. We're shaken. We're tired. We're useless. We just don't have the resources to move forward or to make progress or, or to dislodge this huge ship and get it going again. Whether that's our own personal problems, whether it's, it's, it's trying to help the people that we love and care about around us, or whether it's these problems, kind of global problems that we have, sometimes it can be just so overwhelming. And if you've ever felt that, or if you're feeling it right now, Easter weekend is, has so much of that. I think this is a good time of year for us to, uh, to really wade into thinking about what Easter weekend is all about. See, Friday, if you're one of the disciples, one of those who was following Jesus in those days, Friday was, was such a terrible day. Good Friday was, was the day where you watched your leader, your friend, your teacher, the one that you were following, you've given up your whole life to follow him, and you saw him publicly, violently executed. It was the end of your movement. It, it was a time where they would have said, we work for, for this for years. We've been doing this, and he's been teaching, and, and we've been trying to reach people and help people and care for people. And now you came to this day where all of that was destroyed, taken away. It was the end of the road. And it was done so publicly and so violently, there'd be so much fear and chaos. And then you come to Saturday of Easter weekend, and it's a day of, of continued confusion, of quietness, of trying to come to terms with what are we supposed to do now? Again, they would have been so scared. What's going to happen to us? And, and how are we supposed to pick up the pieces? And are we supposed to go back to our lives before following Jesus? And, and just been so difficult. There'd be so much grief and, and so much mourning. And that, I think, is important for us to wade into when we come to Easter and for, for those moments in our lives where we really feel uh, grief, where we feel hurt, where we feel like we've suffered, and where we feel like, oh, at the end of the day, we're just exhausted and depleted, to know that there is space to be able to grieve and to mourn. And then we come to Sunday. We come to Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, where all of that pain and struggle, which is real, and we don't want to move too quickly past it because we need to process it properly. But then we come to Easter Sunday, 
when Jesus appears to people, when all of a sudden everything that was wrong looks like it's been turned around to go right. And today what I want to talk about is what does that message of resurrection say? How, what does it speak into our lives for those of us who might be tired, exhausted, weary, and overwhelmed as so many of us are. What's the message of resurrection and what does it speak into our lives today? And one of the things I want to share with you, my encouragement to you is don't let what you can't do discourage you from doing what you can do. See, some of us, we're kind of ready to give up. We're, we're fatigued. We go, I can't make a difference. And so maybe it doesn't even matter what I do or how I do it. I'm just at the end of my rope. And, and you know, maybe, maybe we just stop trying Maybe we can't really help people. Maybe we really can't work through our own problems. Maybe this is just what life is. And I want to encourage you again. Don't let what you can't do discourage you from what you can do. Because I think the overwhelming message of the resurrection is that your suffering, your struggles, your problems, the world's problems don't define it. They don't define us. It's not the end. It's not the last word. And I want to talk about the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this very famous chapter about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I want to talk through. And as he writes to people about the resurrection, people in Corinth, um, he, I think, exposes some really bad ideas to live by as he talks about the way to live a resurrection life in this world. How do we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for our world? So I want to talk about three bad ideas that we can combat with what we learn from the resurrection and how we, we hopefully today will be encouraged and energized to continue on and to do good. So Paul first, he starts in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 by giving a really basic summary of the good news of Jesus and what his death and resurrection means. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And then he goes through this section where he talks about him and the other apostles and how Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people and this changed their lives. And we get down to verse 10, he says, But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. Here's the first bad idea. It's legalism. And legalism is exhausting. Here's what we know from Paul by his own description in other places in the New Testament. Paul was a religious superstar. He was from the right family. He had the right education. He had the right job. At one point, we can probably assume he probably had quite a bit of money. He was doing really, really well. He was a teacher, a leader. People followed him. But we also know that he was angry. He was judgmental. He even persecuted some of the first Christians, the early church people who were following Jesus. He was violently persecuting against them. And here's what changed his life. One day he had an encounter. He met the resurrected Jesus. It was the resurrection. Oh, this one that we had killed, this man that we had killed, the revolutionary who was dead. And then all of a sudden he appeared to me and that changed everything. Paul went from being a legalist, and a legalist isn't just someone who's strict or works really hard at trying to be good. It's someone who's trying to achieve something that can only be received. That's why it's exhausting. See, did you catch that? Paul says, I've worked harder than anybody. It's not that I gave up and I, I stopped working for God. I just realized that the things that I need most, I've already been given. I don't have to prove. I don't have to work for. 
And, and that's really important. It goes down to our motivation and what drives us. Are we trying to earn things that you just can't earn? I want to be worthy. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be forgiven. I want to know who I am. Those are all things that you can't, receive, can't achieve, you can only receive. And that's the difference between legalism and grace. It's not whether or not you work hard. You can work hard no matter what. It's whether you're working hard to achieve a certain identity versus grace, which says you've already been given that. It's not even in the right category. Legalism is exhausting because it's all work and no pay. And that's what really burns people out. It's not that we work hard. We don't get tired uh, in that deep sense or the emotional sense or spiritual sense to the point where we burn out just because we're working hard. Most of us, we're wired to work hard to a certain capacity. What really is taxing and exhausting is when you're working hard, but you never get what you are working for. And that's the problem with legalism. You'll never, you'll never work your way towards being loved. You just have to receive being loved. You start there. You're not trying to finish there. You start there. I'm already loved. I'm already worthy because God says I'm loved. God says I'm worthy. That's my identity. So many of us, we're exhausted because we think we need to be our own savior or somebody else's savior or the world's savior. And so we're working to prove ourselves. Look what I can do. Look what I can fix. And if I, if I achieve all of these things, then people uh, will love me. Uh, people will think certain things about me. Uh, I, I will be proving who I am. Well, that's exhausting. But Paul says, I am who I am because of grace. This gospel message that God loved me so much, he would send his son to die for my sins, for my shortcomings, for the way that I have stepped out of what God wants for me and for the world. And he's done it all. He's the savior. He died for my sins and then God raised up Jesus. And that's not what I bank on. It's just the favor that's coming on me. I am who I am because God has poured out this grace on my life. And, and that's where we start. I don't have to be a savior. I don't have to prove myself to the world. I don't have to earn my worth. I can receive those things. It's all grace. It's all grace. Grace is the antidote to legalism. So for some of us, we're just exhausted because we're trying to earn, earn, earn. What do people think of me? Do people love me? Do people accept me? You, go, you, can't, you can't earn those things. You can't achieve those things. We have to receive those things. Second bad idea is sort of this idea of, of hedonism. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump a little bit through this, this uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. If we jump all the way down to thir verse 32, Paul says, And what value is there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Or let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul here uses the imagery um, that horrifically happened, not to him actually literally, but the imagery of Christians who were uh, thrown into the ring with wild animals uh, and they were killed for gladiator games. Maybe you've seen that uh, either in the movies or read it in history. Um, and he talks about that as a metaphor for his suffering. And he talks about uh, the opposition he received in Ephesus. So probably what he's talking about is not that he was actually thrown in the ring with wild beasts, but the opposition he was getting from other people and the debates and the persecution that was coming against him. And what he's saying here is we've suffered, we've hurt, we've put our lives on the line. And if there's no resurrection, then we might come to the conclusion, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live for the moment. Let's just try and feel good now. It's the idea of hedonism. Hedonism is when we put pleasure at the center of our lives. How do I increase my pleasure and decrease my pain? 
for many of us, we just talk about this in terms of, I just want to be happy. And here's why that's exhausting, is because none of us are always going to be happy. Because we can't eliminate suffering from our lives. We know that this year. Things go wrong. Things are out of your control. Things hurt. It's just the, the, the very real aspect of life that we will all suffer. So hedonism is a bad idea. Just kind of giving up and saying, well, if all we have is this life, then let's just live for this moment. Let's make ourselves feel good now. The problem is when that becomes the center of your life, suffering, when suffering comes, it destroys your life. If you think the most important thing in life is feeling good or being happy, then when you're not, you look around and go, my life is ruined. I never thought this would happen. And now what, what am I supposed to do? Life wasn't supposed to be like this. It's not just the suffering of whatever you're going through, but it's also the pain of feeling like my entire life is now meaningless or lost. It was never supposed to be like this. I was never supposed to have this experience. Our culture is so steeped in that. In fact, compared to most cultures of the world, we have a major blind spot because most people um, and anybody who, who's really wise and deep understands we're all going to suffer. We're all going to hurt. And so rather than trying to ignore that or escape it or just say live for the moment, we have to be real about it and move through it. That's why the resurrection is so amazing and the good news of Jesus is so amazing. It's not this unrealistic, oh, don't worry, we're just going to feel good all of the time. It's the cross. It's the pain. It's the suffering. It's the realness of the experience of life. But it's not giving up hope. Because the hope is not that we'll never suffer. The hope is that through suffering, we can find a new way to live. That there's a rebirth. That there's more. That this life isn't all that there is. So if we back up to verse 20, here's what Paul says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. One of the reasons he's writing this letter, and we see this in this chapter, is because the people of Corinth, we're not exactly sure what they were thinking, but it seems like they, A, were having a hard time believing that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I get that. And B, even if they did think that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, they didn't believe that they were going to be resurrected from the dead as well. And so Paul is making the case in this, these verses that I'm about to read is that actually Jesus has risen from the dead. I know because I met him. And since he's been risen from the dead, you too will be risen from the dead, which means this life isn't all that there is. And when you're suffering and hurting and in pain, that doesn't destroy your life because that's not all there is. Resurrection is coming. So he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So he's not the only one that's going to be raised. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam. So we all know this. Adam and Christ here are spoken of as prototypes, as archetypes. We all have this experience, the human experience, which he's, he's talking about as Adam, which means we all know that one day we're going to die. But just like you know that you're part of that group, you're a person that will die, you can know that you can be part of the group of Christ, that you will be resurrected. So everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. 
Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there's no resurrection, let us feast and drink for tomorrow we die. So here's the point. We don't come to the conclusion that it just doesn't matter. Let's try and make ourselves happy and feel good. Let's try and ignore the suffering or escape the suffering or give up on the future. Just don't give up. We have hope. Hope is the antidote to hedonism breaking down. I can't always feel good. I can't avoid suffering. Why? Because what we see in Jesus, what God has done in Jesus, resurrected him. God's going to do in us. He wants to do in you. He's going to raise you up. Gives you hope that what you're doing right now matters and it's meaningful. Then we go on to the third bad idea. Third bad idea is Gnosticism. Gnosticism considered by the church historically as a heresy. And we see it going all the way back to the time of uh, the early Christians uh, in Greek thought. Greek philosophy, um, but we see it over and over and over, even in our generation. I'll explain a little bit what it is and how it creeps into the way that we're thinking. Gnosticism um, comes from the word to, to have knowledge, uh, to reveal knowledge, and it's sort of this idea originally that we have this divine spark kind of deep within us, and our job is to uncover that spark, to, to become knowledgeable about that spark. The problem is we have this physical body and a physical world and physical surroundings that distracts us and is not nearly as important as that, that spark within us. And sort of our job is to become knowledgeable of it so that we can, we can free ourselves, our spirit self, from all that's physical. And so what happens is this dualistic way of thinking where things that are spiritual are thought of as good and things that are physical are thought of as uh, bad or unnecessary, not good. We, just, we, we need to rid ourselves eventually of that. Now, the way that that works itself into Christianity is that a lot of Christians think that what happens is when you die, you know, your, your body dies and your spirit floats off to heaven and stays with God for eternity. And what that leads to is sometimes giving up on the very physical and real problems that we have. It's sort of this escapist theology. Well, things don't really make that much of a difference here. We just have to focus on our spiritual needs, not our physical needs, because after all, we're just all going to float up to heaven and kind of be ghosts for eternity. And so sometimes people excuse working on the very real problems of our lives because it's, they think it's not going to matter anymore. So poverty, yeah, it's bad, and maybe we should give people who are in need a little bit of money, but ultimately it's just about them getting saved and going to heaven after they die. So we don't really need to eradicate poverty or climate change. Well, this world is all just going to die in flames and doesn't matter, but we're going to float off to heaven and it won't matter anymore. And so they ignore sometimes how we treat the planet. And you could, you could see how this could work its way out into all kinds of problems in the world. Does healthcare really matter? Well, yeah, our physical bodies don't really matter that much. We just need to make sure people are going to go to heaven after they die. The problem with that is it's not biblical and it's not what Paul thought. It's not what the other biblical writers like John in the book of Revelation thought and wrote about. It's not uh, any, anywhere in kind of the, the basic Jewish teachings that all of this comes out. And it's not what Jesus taught. All of them taught based on not just the resurrection, but the resurrection was a big part of it, that we're holistic people, spiritual, physical. It's all good and it all matters. And one day God is going to renew everything, including what is physical. And so we don't abandon it. It's not that it doesn't matter. All of this actually matters. And the resurrection is an affirmation of the physical body. 
that one day God's going to raise us all up. So yeah, when we die, what happens to us? It's mysterious, uh, but, but Christian theology uh, is kind of an affirmation. Yes, our spirit is with God and preserved by God, but what, what is kind of our eternal destiny is that God is going to raise us up as full whole people and recreate the heavens and the earth. And we live in not a disembodied world, but in a physical, spiritual one. Oftentimes, Paul is misunderstood about this. And I'll explain why. If we go down to verse 42, here's what he says. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die. We all know that. But they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies... There are also spiritual bodies. Now, some people read this and they think, oh, natural body is physical, spiritual body is spiritual. So we have the body, the physical, and the spiritual, and we separate them. What's important is the spiritual. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul here is, is talking about, and in Greek, they have a way of actually writing this in that we don't have in English. So it's hard for us to translate. But what Paul is saying here, he's, he's not saying one's a physical body and one's a spiritual body. Saying one's a natural body, which uh, is, is animated or energized. It's fueled by our soul, our, our natural human essence. But the spiritual body is fueled by spirit. The part of us that connects with God's spirit. And as we depend on him, trust in him, listen to him, he empowers our lives. And so it's kind of like, it's not like comparing something that's physical and not physical, a a physical body and a non-physical person or soul. It's like comparing two things that are similar, but have different fuel. So it's kind of like saying, um, this is a car that runs on gas. This is a car that runs on electricity. Both are cars. Both circumstances, Paul's saying we have physical bodies. But our new physical body, the resurrected physical bodies, our our whole selves are going to be animated, are going to be energized, are going to be run by the spirit, our connection, our spiritual connection with God, which is what really our spiritual disciplines we're trying to learn now. And we will fully experience them in the resurrected body. Here's what this means. What we do, even if it doesn't seem like it right now. Even if it seems like we're not making a difference, uh, we're not doing anything meaningful, really matters now. Really makes a difference now. Here's what N.T. Wright says about it. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to fall over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown in the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into new creation, which God will one day make. Everything we do for God 
God matters because it will not be destroyed by death. Because God has overcome death and every good thing will last into eternity. That's what the resurrection is about. And when we're tired and exhausted and we feel like we're not making a difference and the problems are not going to go away, we need to be reminded that that's what the resurrection is all about. The renewal of good creation and we get to be part of it. You know that, that big ship and the little excavator? What's amazing about that is if you actually read uh, about how they dislodged the boat, it took them about 10 days to dislodge this boat. And the way that they did it was they had all these tugboats, some pushing, some pulling. They had dredgers, they, you know, the tide rose, that helped, all this kind of stuff. And finally they got it going, but it took all kinds of different people, all kinds of different tools, all kinds of different stuff to make sure that they could actually dislodge this boat, solve the problem, get it going through the canal. Do you know what the excavator was there for? The excavator's only job was to dig up the dirt and the mud that the bow of the boat had gotten stuck in. The excavator didn't have to solve the whole problem. All it had to do was dig out the mud that was around the very tip of the bow. And do you know what's amazing about that? That's exactly what an excavator is designed to do. And all it had to do was exactly what it was resourced to do. And that's the same with us. We can't look at our problems and other people's problems and the world's problems and say, oh, I can't, I can't dislodge this boat. We're not the Savior. We don't have to do that. But we have a Savior. The one who's going to solve everything, who's going to renew everything. Our job is to take the resources and what we're designed to do and to do it. So don't let what you can't do discourage you from doing what you can do. Because everything you do from God in some mysterious and wonderful way, will live into eternity, will matter. Every encouragement, everything that you, you teach, every act of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and beauty and art, all done in God's name, will live on into eternity. And so when you get tired and you feel depleted and you feel weak and you feel useless, we come to the very last verse of this chapter for Paul and he reminds us, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord for you know that nothing you do for the Lord, nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And so Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that on Easter weekend, we're reminded not that there's no suffering and no problems because we know that's not true. We live in the midst of them, but we're reminded that it is through suffering, it is through pain, even through death that comes your resurrection. Thank you for the cross of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the resurrection and the empty tomb and the power that that infuses into our life. And thank you that one day you will renew and recreate the heavens and the earth. You will make all things new and good and beautiful. Today, remind those of us who are tired and discouraged that everything we do in your name and for you matters because it will be carried into that reality. And we look forward. Oh, we look forward to that time when there's no more death or pain or suffering, where you wipe away all the tears from our eyes and all the reasons why those tears come. And we will live with you for always. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name.